what conditions are stipulations. Magic tricks or manipulations interjecting conversation. All right, so we are returning here for part two on the Second Amendment and gun rights and stand your ground laws. So when we left the Second Amendment, we had hashed through its interpretive history and discussed the NRA and company catalyzed shift in the amendment being an obsolete one, protecting militia, to today's constitutional colossus, wielding an absolute individual right to bear arms. The last case we covered in this madcap trajectory was 2008's Heller which played a key role in that expansion by enshrining a new individual right to bear arms. Uh, it made all its novel determinations under the guise of original constitutional intent, no less. So here in part two, we'll confront the most recent, larger still, SCOTUS expansion from a 2022 case. We'll jump from there to just one of the many consequent problems created by lenient gun regulations, and that is stand your ground laws. Here and after, I'm going to call them, at least in the written bit, SYG for our sanity, and mostly mine regarding typing. But I think saying it out loud, I'll probably just say stand your ground because SYG is just as difficult. In any case, <laughs> um, uh, several shootings invoking stand your ground laws, or the closely related castle doctrine, have recently made headlines, and there's been at least one more case since we last spoke about it in part one. All four shootings targeted innocent, unarmed young people who were lost or wandering around, but otherwise, you know, behaving legally. And since guns are our subject, I'd be remiss not to make mention of the literally countless mass shootings that have also transpired over the course of writing parts one and two here. All right, the new sheriff in town, 2022's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. In 2022, an even more conservative SCOTUS, uh, compared to 2008's Heller, overturned a New York law that required anyone seeking an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm show proper cause for doing so. Justice Clarence Thomas, whose ascendancy to, to the Supreme Court was noted in Part 1 as a huge boon to the pro-gun movement, as much as it was a blight on other movements, wrote the majority opinion. So in Brune, he and the court held that the very reasonable, in my humble opinion, New York law was unconstitutional because it prevented, by requiring a brief explanation on an application, good law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs, like carrying a hidden gun in public, from exercising their Second Amendment rights. Makes perfect sense to me. Such facial challenges, or cases that challenge the constitutionality of a law's entire existence, also act on any current or future laws that resemble the law in question. So in other words, Bruin changed the permissible bounds of all gun regulations nationwide hereafter. To withstand a challenge under Bruin's new test, advocates for any and all gun laws must look back into history and show that the new law is consistent with our country's professed historical tradition of firearm regulation. Per our last conversation about the history of our country's tradition and previous interpretations of Second Amendment and gun laws, 
I say to this, what the ever-loving fuck? In practice, this means that every gun regulation could be imperiled unless legislators, parties to court challenges, gun control advocates, whoever's on the pro-gun control side, can point to historical examples that mirror the law in question. Now, on an abstract level, this creates an inevitable existential crisis, right? If a perfect pre-existing historical law actually existed, there would be no reason for the new, duplicative, now-challenged law to have been passed in the first place, because it would have already existed. And vice versa. If it's a new, necessary law, why, why pass it if there is a historical duplicate? So, <laughs> that's on a more intellectual level, but there are practical issues even if I dismount my high horse. When looking to quote-unquote history, when and where is this test's cutoff? After all, some of the gun laws that are now open to challenges are themselves 60-plus years old, so presumably qualifying quote-unquote history only exists before that era, since they themselves are subject to challenges being 60 years old. But if we look back, you know, almost a century then, and beyond, for comparable legislation, that's a fool's errand. Because comparable weapons and commercial structures for purchase and exchange, these new NRA-created risks, and societal norms didn't even exist yet in the historical times that we'd be looking at. So, you know, if you're looking for an on-point assault weapon ban, or domestic abuser prohibitions, or internet sale regulations before the 1950s, like, best of luck, chumps, you're not gonna find it. And they knew that. Uh, of course, I have to reiterate ceaselessly until I am dead that the original founders disavowed this quote-unquote originalism model vehemently. Recall T.J. Thomas Jefferson's quote comparing a legal interpretation not allowing for societal progress to somebody forcing a man to wear his childhood coat. So this sanctified historical approach that the court is using leaves little to no room for the very concept of progress under the same governmental structure, you know, without totally retooling the Constitution every time society progresses a little bit. It's always really funny to me, and I feel like somebody should remind the Black Justice Clarence Thomas and the female Justice Amy Coney Barrett, etc., how integral progress is under the same Constitution to their very existence. But I digress and get mad. Um, <laughs> So, the Bruin holding doesn't just prevent progress, it also rolls back the existing protections that existed up until this point. And those protections themselves obviously weren't nearly enough to prevent recent years' shootings, so we're really screwed now. <laughs> the post-Bruin cases, since the ruling last year, that have already struck down protections also illustrate how this new standard sets laws up for failure. Um, Already thus un overturned under that structure are federal laws preventing domestic abusers from owning guns, and New York State, thus including New York City's gun law, preventing firearms in public places. So that includes, for example, Times Square and the subway system. A Bruin challenge on age constraints for purchasing AR-15-style semi-automatic weapons is also pending. So, not surprisingly, lower courts across the country are struggling to apply the new ruling, and 
So that means they're kind of struggling with what the standard means, and they're also struggling to reach consistent decisions doing so, consistent with other decisions, consistent with other courts, etc. Judges trying to do this have pointed out that they and their judicial colleagues are pretty ill-equipped to study, assess, and accurately apply historical attitudes on guns to new legislative contexts. Of course, I mean, we all are, including the Supreme Court that did this. <laughs> um, at best, as with all of these quote-unquote originalist ventures, whatever historical theses can be pieced together by these judges and their staff are incredibly subjective, super manipulable, and honestly of questionable relevance to new legislation and whether it stands under our current structure. A George W. Bush appointed judge, so obviously we're talking about a conservative, gun-loving appointee, presumably, also criticized Bruin um, when he was forced to apply the standard recently for forcing the creation of an entirely bulletproof and unrestrained Second Amendment. So that's where we are. G.W. Bush appointees are saying this is way too conservative and gun-loving. As are so many conservative policy movements at the moment, um, today's gun movement is the product of a vocal, disproportionately weighted minority, not real people. Though concerns for gun safety and human safety at large tend to unite the real people on both sides, GOP leadership and the NRA have worked to silence their own party's unifying safety cry, because they would rather instead cast gun control as this menacing straw man to attack, and thus justify their push in some sort of false response to pulverize all gun safeguards, and then make money as the NRA. Uh, obviously this movement has facilitated expansion and creation of a whole lot of dangers. So we'll move now to talk about those actual stand-your-ground laws. The first stand-your-ground laws predate Bruin, um, but not by very long. Florida passed the country's first stand-your-ground law in 2005, so like so many of these things that like are later enshrined with the false guise of original intent and history, uh, it's actually really new and really radical. Stand-your-ground operates under the principle of shoot first, ask questions later, it gives somebody a legal right to use deadly force, so by guns or otherwise, outside their own home if they, quote, reasonably believe that they're being threatened. Like in other iterations of the self-defense justification, stand your ground claims are strongest with evidence of an actual threat posed by the eventual victim, actual injuries to the eventual attacker, and other evidence of the interaction between the two of them supporting the belief that the eventual victim posed an imminent threat to the attacker before the attacker injured them. I hope the two parties are clear in your head, because it is kind of a subversion happens in the interaction. But uh, that self-defense undergirding also begs the question, of why pass stand-your-ground laws when self-defense provisions already reasonably cover defending yourself against actual threats. Stand-your-ground's vindication of deadly force applies even, as is key here in these four cases, if what you initially perceive as that deadly force risk from them was not actually force or aggression at all. 
with a reasonable belief you can still legally kill an innocent victim and an unarmed victim, etc., as some kind of, like, pre-retribution for what you thought they were going to do. So, to clarify, to qualify for Stand Your Ground's liability shield, that reasonable belief of a threat is enough to get you off the hook. The subjectivity of belief, even with the standards grounding in this reasonability factor, varies even more in relation to what's reasonable in different regions, considering things like racism and regressive social values. And the more that people lock in and actively fearmonger, perpetuate and voice their biases, the more reasonable that fear to violence response becomes in any given society. And this is also why, especially looking at the country at large, every additional state law, court ruling, you know, even viral racist TikTok or a local op-ed can really permeate through the rest of the country pretty quickly and affect what is reasonable in our national society. Obviously, not a surprise to anybody, um, deaths and injuries that are covered and indemnified kind of by stand-your-ground laws disproportionately befall black and brown victims. Looking at the recent cases, the expansive threat assessment is actually not very discriminating, but of course I don't mean that in the positive way of not discriminating. For reckless gun owners, there is no benefit of the doubt given, and just about anyone can and will be presumed to be a threat. From obviously looking at our cases, teenage girls in cheer uniforms, a black boy knocking respectfully at a front door, a white woman looking at directions behind her own steering wheel, to a child playing hide-and-seek in her neighbor's yard. I say this with the caveat that we technically have not seen all these cases legal resolution yet, so we thus don't know whether standard ground-esque defenses will actually be effective in getting people off the hook, but still, the fact that the laws exist and then these cases happened in states where those laws exist, um, pretty strong statement. Either way, uh, for the victims, and all of us potential victims out there living in any stand-your-ground jurisdiction, the heightened risk of deadly force applies just about anywhere. So not just if you're on somebody else's property, but if you are in a public space or, you know, anywhere that you have a legal right to occupy. Many of us were first acquainted with this risk and stand-your-ground laws at large when the quintessential Florida man, George Zimmerman, shot and killed Trayvon Martin, who was a black high schooler. The 17-year-old Martin was walking around his dad's neighborhood. Obviously, he was unarmed with any weapon, and he was not engaging in any threatening behavior except for existing. Um, and he was talking on the phone with his girlfriend when Zimmerman killed him. Shot him point blank. Uh, Florida's stand-your-ground laws prevented Zimmerman from facing any charges for killing Martin, um, that is not always the case with Stand Your Ground. Sometimes, um, and in a lot of the cases we are looking at here, it's asserted as a defense at trial, but it sounds like in Florida it prevented law enforcement and prosecutors from even bringing the charge, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, it's interesting to compare the Bernie Getz self-defense case to modern Stand Your Ground fact patterns. Though Getz predated Stand Your Ground, his case would have been a pretty solid candidate, for those of us who are only familiar with Getz from We Didn't Start the Fire, uh, Bernie Getz was a scrawny electrical engineer living in 1980s New York City. 
who, after allegedly being accosted by four young black men attempting to rob him on the subway, shot them with a gun that he had concealed on his person. The Getz case illustrates how times have changed in a lot of ways. On the one hand, in 1984, Getz's racial animus, which seems so evident through today's lens, played little into the narrative in the media. On the other, the legal world pre-Stand Your Ground didn't presume Getz's violence was acceptable and didn't officially shift guilt to the victims, giving the deceased some sort of impossible burden to prove otherwise. So it's like in one sense, we've made some progress, and in the other, we've really regressed. While the Getz case was still controversial in its own right at the time, Getz's fear that he faced a risk of deadly force against him while on the New York subway was more unanimously deemed reasonable. New Yorkers at the time by and large defended the subway vigilante at a time when New York City was notorious for violent crime, and at that time it was averaging about six murders per day. Most people in the area, and I think even nationwide, believed his account of menacing behavior on behalf of his eventual victims, his assessment of their prior interactions with riders at the other end of the car, and most believed that the four had surrounded Getz and demanded money. I have to say, as a longtime New York City resident during this decade, I've been accosted more than once on the subway and feel fear even more frequently because of that, but that said, I've never even come close to turning to deadly force. And, frankly, I haven't faced it, either. Getz's self-defense claim successfully exonerated him at trial for the deaths and injuries that he caused, and he was only convicted of criminal possession of a weapon, which is, ironically now, a virtually an obsolete crime itself, even in New York City. For that conviction, he served eight months in prison. Um, the outcome shows the efficacy and, you know, the risk of racist fallibility, even at just the standard self-defense level, in the self-defense provisions that existed before Stand Your Ground, without ever needing to expand the defense to Stand Your Ground's near presumption that a murder is justified. Uh, Getz, Zimmerman, and the four recent shootings all illustrate the last fundamental principle that is now enshrined in Stand Your Ground laws and also in the Castle Doctrine, which we'll talk about next. And that's that the eventual aggressor has no duty to retreat. Many other self-defense-related provisions require somebody who claims that they feel threatened to attempt to leave or de-escalate the situation before they resort to violence. But Stand Your Ground has no such requirement. So for example, somebody in George Zimmerman's position can act aggressively and taunt their soon-to-be victim in response to that victim posing some alleged threat, ultimately then adding insult to injury and shooting them. So today, 10 U.S. states and counting boast their own stand-your-ground laws with no duty to retreat. All right, the Castle Doctrine. So three of the four headline-making shootings within the last month took place on the shooter's home property. We must thus address the Kessel Doctrine, which is another sibling in the self-defense and stand-your-ground family. The doctrine's name and principles stem from the premise that a man's home is his castle, presumably a woman's is hers too. Um, therefore, a perceived attack on somebody in their castle is legal justification enough for them to use deadly force. 
So that means, you know, even if somebody comes in to rob you or to break in and mess with your teenage kid, you don't have to see anything more than somebody you don't know in your home to justify you using deadly force against them. Uh, so, you know, the eventual victim's mere presence can be enough to vindicate their killing without them posing an actual threat, without wielding any deadly force themselves, and without any duty on behalf of the homeowner to attempt to retreat or de-escalate the situation first. So as for the four recent cases where they stand, so the first one is Ralph Jarl, the unarmed black teen who was shot for knocking on the wrong door when picking up his younger brothers, the 84-year-old white man, homeowner Andrew Lester, who shot him was arrested but released on moderate bail. Missouri, where this took place, does have standard ground laws, and Lester has already asserted them in defense to his felony assault charge. In this case, we'll have to wait until the trial, or at least, you know, plea negotiations to see if Lester is exonerated under standard ground. In the case of the Texas cheerleaders, shot after practice in a grocery store parking lot for approaching the wrong car, Pedro Rodriguez Jr., who's the adult man who shot at them and left one in critical condition, was charged with deadly conduct, a third-degree felony in Texas. Third degree plus this wishy-washy deadly conduct charge, with which I'm not super familiar, seems pretty low, especially because evidence has come out showing that Rodriguez continued shooting at the girls even after they retreated, wounded, to their own car, and had started driving away. Texas, of course, has also adopted standard ground laws, so we shall see. The third one is the death of 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis, who took a wrong turn into a driveway. The old white male homeowner who shot her, <laughs> Kevin Monahan, is still in custody for second-degree murder in upstate New York. New York does not have any standard ground laws, but the Castle Doctrine does apply, meaning that Monahan had no duty to retreat before using deadly force on his own property against Gillis. Gillis, too, was driving away when Monahan fired the fatal shot, and I think that the victim's retreat is going to play into any self-defense assessment. Even if there's no duty to retreat, if somebody's running away from you, you can't really still make the I still felt threatened argument. The newest case where a 14-year-old girl was shot playing hide-and-seek, the Louisiana girl was hiding on her neighbor David Doyle's property when Doyle heard a noise and opened fire on her. Doyle is a 58-year-old white man, and he's been charged with multiple counts of assault and battery. Louisiana also has standard ground laws. So I'm sensing a more than anecdotal correlation between standard ground laws being on the books and citizens feeling dangerously comfortable shooting at people. Finally, violence begets violence. This last refrain is more opinion than law, but it's an opinion I'm emboldened to say as violence keeps proliferating. I also have to thank the late Judy Human, who was the subject of my first newsletter, for echoing these sentiments back then and further empowering me to speak them now. <laughs> From the Black Panther's ill-fated Second Amendment strategy in the 70s, to the self-defense rationale behind Stand Your Ground, to every good guy with a gun who has failed to prevent mass casualties, we see time and again how violence, even as a means towards noble ends, often backfires in a flawed system that's populated with bigots. Within those same imbalanced power structures, and honestly, probably without them too, 
violence just normalizes and begets more violence. So I would like to debunk that good guy with a gun fallacy once and for all. It reminds me of those like prepper types or the Branch Davidians at Waco who claim to be arming themselves against some impending government assault. And one, no one weirdo family is going to fill an entire nation state's resources, period. And two, this kind of obsession with violence becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. All the while, you're creating more comfort with violence while amassing your own means to escalate things like domestic abuse and all other social disputes by having all these killing machines at your disposal. Now, I know I carry my own bias of being a relatively small, asthmatic, non-muscular woman, so I would be at a pretty serious disadvantage in any hierarchy of, you know, the capacity for physical aggression. But the better strategy, in my opinion, is to get better people in government, build better structures and training and education to protect competence within and without the government, cut military and law enforcement weapons spending to allocate it elsewhere, and create means of conflict intervention on both sides, in this case both sides meaning government and civilian contexts, that don't rely on some dangerous primal violence hierarchy. So that's all she wrote today, folks. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're reading this on my Substack, thank you so much, and if you're listening to it, I would love to have you subscribe at mkzjoybrennan.substack.com. Also, any funds that you have to give would be super appreciated. And uh, with that, I love you, and as my aunt and Warren's Yvonne have said, enjoy every sandwich. Bye bye.